Section 17 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 10. Wandering Rocks. Part 1. The superior, the very reverend John Conmey, S.J., reset his smooth watch in his interior pocket as he came down the presbytery steps. Five to three. Just nice time to walk to Artane. What was that boy's name again? Dignum, yes. Where dignum et eustum est? Brother Swan was the person to see. Mr. Cunningham's letter, yes. Oblige him, if possible. Good practical Catholic. Useful at mission time. A one-legged sailor, swinging himself onward by lazy jerks of his crutches, growled some notes. He jerked short before the convent of the Sisters of Charity, and held out a peaked cap for alms toward the very Reverend John Conmey, S.J. Father Conmey blessed him in the sun for his purse held, he knew, one silver crown. Father Conmey crossed to Mountjoy Square. He thought, but not for long, of soldiers and sailors, whose legs had been shot off by cannonballs, ending their days in some pauper ward, and of Cardinal Wolsey's words, If I had served my God as I have served my king, he would not have abandoned me in my old days. He walked by the tree-shade of sunny-winking leaves, and towards him came the wife of Mr. David Sheehy, M.P. "'Very well indeed, Father, and you, Father?' Father Conmey was wonderfully well indeed. He would go to Buxton, probably, for the waters. And her boys, were they getting on well at Belvedere? Was that so? Father Conmey was very glad indeed to hear that. And Mr. Sheehy himself? Still in London. The house was still sitting, to be sure it was. Beautiful weather it was, delightful indeed. Yes, it was very probable that Father Bernard Vaughan would come again to preach. Oh, yes, a very great success. A wonderful man, really. Father Conmey was very glad to see the wife of Mr. David Sheehy, M.P., looking so well, and he begged to be remembered to Mr. David Sheehy, M.P. Yes, he would certainly call. Good afternoon, Mrs. Sheehy. Father Conmey doffed his silk hat and smiled as he took leave at the jet-beads of her mantilla ink-shining in the sun, and smiled yet again in going. He had cleaned his teeth, he knew, with arconut paste. Father Conmey walked, and, walking, smiled, for he thought on Father Bernard Vaughan's droll eyes and cockney voice. Pilot, why don't you old back that owlin mob? A zealous man, however, really he was, and really did great good in his way. Beyond a doubt, he loved Ireland, he said, and he loved the Irish. Of good family, too, one would think it. Welsh, were they not? Oh, lest he forget that letter to Father Provincial. Father Conmey stopped three little schoolboys at the corner of Mountjoy Square. Yes, they were from Belvedere. The little house. Aha. And were they good boys at school? Oh, that was very good now. And what was his name? Jack Sohan. And his name? Gurr. Gallagher. And the other little man? His name was Bernie Lyman. Oh, that was a very nice name to have. Father Conmey gave a letter from his breast to Master Bernie Lyman, and pointed to the red pillar box at the corner of Fitzgibbon Street. But mind, you don't post yourself into the box, little man, he said. The boys six-eyed Father Conmey and laughed. Oh, sir. Well, let me see if you can post a letter, Father Conmey said. Master Bernie Lynham ran across the road and put Father Conmey's letter to Father Provincial into the mouth of the bright red letter-box. Father Conmey smiled and nodded and smiled 
and walked along Mountjoy Square East. Mr. Dennis J. McGinney, professor of dancing, etc., in silk hat, slate frock coat with silk facings, white kerchief tie, tight lavender trousers, canary gloves, and pointed patent boots, walking with grave deportment, most respectfully took the curbstone as he passed Lady Maxwell at the corner of Dignam's Court. Was that not Mrs. McGinnis? Mrs. McGinnis, stately, silver-haired, bowed to Father Conmee from the farther footpath along which she sailed, and Father Conmee smiled and saluted. How did she do? A fine carriage she had, like Mary Queen of Scots, something. And to think that she was a pawnbroker. Well, now, such a... What should he say? Such a queenly Mayan. Father Conmee walked down Great Charles Street and glanced at the shut-up free church on his left. The Reverend T. R. Green, B.A. Will, D.V., speak. The incumbent, they called him. He felt it incumbent on him to say a few words, but one should be charitable. Invincible ignorance. They acted according to their lights. Father Conmee turned the corner and walked along the North Circular Road. It was a wonder that there was not a tram line in such an important thoroughfare. Surely there ought to be. A band of satcheled schoolboys crossed from Richmond Street, all raised untidy caps. Father Conmee greeted them more than once benignly, Christian brother boys. Father Conmee smelt incense on his right hand as he walked. St. Joseph's Church, Portland Row, for aged and virtuous females. Father Conmee raised his hat to the Blessed Sacrament. Virtuous, but occasionally they were also bad-tempered. Near Aldborough House, Father Conmee thought of that spendthrift nobleman, and now it was an office or something. Father Conmee began to walk along the North Strand Road and was saluted by Mr. William Gallagher, who stood in the doorway of his shop. Father Conmee saluted Mr. William Gallagher and perceived the odors that came from bacon flitches and ample cools of butter. He passed Grogan's the tobacconist, against which newsboards leaned and told of a dreadful catastrophe in New York. In America those things were continually happening. Unfortunate people to die like that, unprepared. Still an act of perfect contrition. Father Conmee went by Daniel Bergen's public house, against the window of which two unlaboring men lounged. They saluted him and were saluted. Father Conmee passed H. J. O'Neill's funeral establishment, where Corny Kelleher totted figures in the daybook while he chewed a blade of hay. A constable on his beat saluted Father Conmee, and Father Conmee saluted the constable. In Yaukstetter's, the pork butchers, Father Conmee observed pig's puddings, white and black and red, lie neatly curled in tubes. Moored under the trees of Charleville Mall, Father Conmee saw a turf barge, a tow-horse with pendant head, a bargeman with a hat of dirty straw seated amidships, smoking and staring at a branch of poplar above him. It was idyllic, and Father Conmee reflected on the providence of the Creator, who had made turf to be in bogs, whence men might dig it out and bring it to town, and hamlet to make fires in the houses of poor people. On Newcomen Bridge, the very Reverend John Conmee S.J. of St. Francis Xavier's Church, Upper Gardiner Street, stepped onto an outward-bound tram. Off an inward-bound tram stepped the Reverend Nicholas Dudley C.C. of St. Agatha's Church, North William Street, onto Newcomen Bridge. 
At New Common Bridge, Father Conmee stepped into an outward-bound tram, for he disliked to traverse on foot the dingy way past Mud Island. Father Conmee sat in a corner of the tram-car, a blue ticket tucked with care in the eye of one plump kid glove, while four shillings, a sixpence, and five pennies shooted from his other plump glove-palm into his purse. Passing the ivy church, he reflected that the ticket inspector usually made his visit when one had carelessly thrown away the ticket. The solemnity of the occupants of the car seemed to Father Conmee excessive for a journey so short and cheap. Father Conmee liked cheerful decorum. It was a peaceful day. The gentleman with the glasses opposite Father Conmee had finished explaining and looked down. His wife, Father Conmee supposed. A tiny yawn opened the mouth of the wife of the gentleman with the glasses. She raised her small gloved fist yawned ever so gently, tip-tapping her small gloved fist on her opening mouth, and smiled tinily, sweetly. Father Conmee perceived her perfume in the car. He perceived also that the awkward man at the other side of her was sitting on the edge of the seat. Father Conmee at the altar rails placed the host with difficulty in the mouth of the awkward old man who had the shaky head. At Ansley Bridge the tram halted, and, when it was about to go, an old woman rose suddenly from her place to alight. The conductor pulled the bell-strap to stay the car for her. She passed out with her basket and a market net, and Father Conmee saw the conductor help her and net and basket down, and Father Conmee thought that, as she had nearly passed the end of the penny fare, she was one of those good souls who had always to be told twice, Bless you, my child, that they have been absolved. Pray for me. But they had so many worries in life, so many cares, poor creatures. From the hoardings, Mr. Eugene Stratton grimaced with thick nigger lips at Father Conmee. Father Conmee thought of the souls of black and brown and yellow men, and of his sermon on St. Peter Claver S.J., and the African mission, and of the propagation of the faith, and of the millions of black and brown and yellow souls that had not yet received the baptism of water when their last hour came like a thief in the night. That book by the Belgian Jesuit... Le nombre de élus seemed to Father Conmee a reasonable plea. Those were millions of human souls created by God in his own likeness to whom the faith had not, D.V., been brought. But they were God's souls created by God. It seemed to Father Conmee a pity that they should all be lost, a waste, if one might say. At the Houth Road stop, Father Conmee alighted and was saluted by the conductor and saluted in his turn. The Malahide Road was quiet. It pleased Father Conmee, road and name. The joy bells were ringing in gay Malahide. Lord Talbot de Malahide, immediate hereditary Lord Admiral of Malahide and the seas adjoining. Then came the call to arms, and she was maid, wife and widow, in one day. Those were old worldish days, loyal times in joyous townlands, old times in the barony. Father Conmee, walking, thought of his little book, Old Times in the Barony, and of the book that might be written about Jesuit houses, and of Mary Rockfort, daughter of Lord Molesworth, first Countess of Belvedere. A listless lady, no more young, walked alone the shore of Luff Ennel, Mary, first Countess of Belvedere, listlessly walking in the evening, not startled when an otter plunged. Who could know the truth? Not the jealous Lord Belvedere? and not her confessor if she had not committed adultery fully, 
Eaculatio seminis inter vos natural mulieris, with her husband's brother. She would half confess if she had not all sinned as women did. Only God knew, and she and he, her husband's brother. Father Conmy thought of that tyrannous incontinence, needed, however, for man's race on earth, and of the ways of God, which were not our ways. Don John Conmy walked and moved in times of yore. He was humane and honored there. He bore in mind secrets confessed, and he smiled at smiling noble faces in a beeswaxed drawing-room, sealed with full fruit clusters. And the hands of a bride and of a bridegroom, noble to noble, were empalmed by Don John Conmy. It was a charming day. The lich-gate of a field showed Father Conmy breadths of cabbages, curtsying to him with ample underleaves. The sky showed him a flock of small white clouds going slowly down the wind. Moutonne, the French said, a just and homely word. Father Conmy, reading his office, watched a flock of muttoning clouds over Rath Coffee. His thin-socked ankles were tickled by the stubble of Clongo's field. He walked there, reading in the evening, and heard the cries of the boys' lines at their play, young cries in the quiet evening. He was their rector. His reign was mild. Father Conmy drew off his gloves and took his re-dedged breviary out. An ivory bookmark told him the page. Nones. He should have read that before lunch, but Lady Maxwell had come. Father Conmy read in secret Pater and Ave and crossed his breast. Deus in adiutorium. He walked calmly and read mutely the nones, walking and reading till he came to res in beati immaculati principium verborum tuorum veritas in eternum omnia indicia iustitiae tuae. A flushed young man came from a gap of a hedge, and after him came a young woman with wild nodding daisies in her hand. The young man raised his cap abruptly. The young woman abruptly bent and with slow care detached from her light skirt a clinging twig. Father Conmy blessed both gravely and turned a thin page of his breviary. Sin, Percipes persecuti sunt migratis, et e verbis tuis formidavit cor meum. Corny Kelleher closed his long day-book and glanced with his drooping eye at a pine coffin-lid sentried in a corner. He pulled himself erect, went to it, and, spinning it on its axle, viewed its shape and brass furnishings. Chewing his blade of hay, he laid the coffin-lid by and came to the doorway. There he tilted his hat-brim to give shade to his eyes and leaned against the door-case, looking idly out. Father John Conmy stepped into the Dollymount tram on Newcomen Bridge. Corny Kelleher locked his large-footed boots and gazed, his hat down-tilted, chewing his blade of hay. Constable 57C, on his beat, stood to pass the time of day. That's a fine day, Mr. Kelleher. Aye, Corny Kelleher said. It's very close, the constable said. Corny Kelleher sped a silent jet of hay juice arching from his mouth, while a generous white arm from a window in Eccle Street flung forth a coin. What's the best news? he asked. I seen that particular party last evening, the constable said with bated breath. A one-legged sailor crutched himself round McConnell's corner, skirting Rabiotti's ice-cream car, and jerked himself up Eccle Street. 
towards Larry O'Rourke, in shirt-sleeves in his doorway, he growled unamiably, "'For England!' He swung himself violently forward past Katie and Booty Dedalus, halted and growled, "'Home and beauty!' J.J. O'Malloy's white, careworn face was told that Mr. Lambert was in the warehouse with a visitor. A stout lady stopped, took a copper coin from her purse, and dropped it into the cap held out to her. The sailor grumbled thanks, glanced sourly at the unheeding windows, sank his head and swung himself forward four strides. He halted and growled angrily, For England! Two barefoot urchins sucking long licorice laces halted near him, gaping at his stump with their yellow slobbered mouths. He swung himself forward in vigorous jerks, halted, lifted his head towards a window and bayed deeply, Home and beauty! The gay, sweet, chirping, whistling within went on a bar or two, ceased. The blind of the window was drawn aside. A card, unfurnished apartments, slipped from the sash and fell. A plump, bare, generous arm shone, was seen, held forth from a white petticoat bodice and taut shift straps. A woman's hand flung forth a coin over the area railings. It fell on the path. One of the urchins ran to it, picked it up, and dropped it into the minstrel's cap, saying, There, sir. Katie and Booty Dedalus shoved in the door of the close-steaming kitchen. Did you put in the books? Booty asked. Maggie at the range jammed down a grayish mass beneath bubbling suds twice with her pot-stick and wiped her brow. They wouldn't give anything on them, she said. Father Conmy walked through Clongo's field, his thin-socked ankles tickled by stubble. "'Where did you try?' Booty asked. "'McGinnis's!' Booty stamped her foot and threw her satchel on the table. "'Bad cess to her big face!' she cried. Katie went to the range and peered with squinting eyes. "'What's in the pot?' she asked. "'Shirts,' Maggie said. Booty cried angrily. "'Crikey, is there nothing for us to eat?' Katie, lifting the kettle lid in a pad of her stained skirt, asked, "'And what's in this?' A heavy fume gushed in answer. "'Pea soup,' Maggie said. "'Where did you get it?' Katie asked. "'Sister Mary Patrick,' Maggie said. The lackey rang his bell. "'Barang!' Booty sat down at the table and said hungrily, "'Give us it here!' Maggie poured yellow thick soup from the kettle into a bowl. Katie, sitting opposite Booty, said quietly, as her fingertip lifted to her mouth random crumbs. A good job we have that much. Where's Dilly? Gone to meet father, Maggie said. Booty, breaking big chunks of bread into the yellow soup, added, Our father, who art not in heaven. Maggie, pouring yellow soup in Katie's bowl, exclaimed, Booty, for shame! A skiff, a crumpled throwaway, Elijah is coming, rode lightly down the Liffey, under Loop Line Bridge, shooting the rapids where water chafed around the bridge piers, sailing eastward past hulls and anchor chains between the Custom House Old Dock and George's Quay. The blonde girl in Thornton's bedded the wicker basket with rustling fiber. Blazes Boylan handed her the bottle swathed in pink tissue paper and a small jar. "'Put these in first, will you?' he said. "'Yes, sir,' the blonde girl said. "'And the fruit on top.' "'That'll do. Game ball,' Blazes Boylan said. She bestowed fat pears neatly, head by tail, and among them ripe, shame-faced peaches. Blazes Boylan walked here and there in new tan shoes about the fruit-smelling shop, lifting fruits, young, juicy, crinkled, and plump red tomatoes, 
sniffing smells. H-E-L-Ys filed before him, tall, white-hatted, past Tangier Lane, plodding toward their goal. He turned suddenly from a chip of strawberries, drew a gold watch from his fob, and held it at chain's length. Can you send them by tram? Now? A dark-backed figure under Merchant's Arch scanned books on the hawker's cart. Certainly, sir. Is it in the city? Oh, yes, Blazes Boylan said. Ten minutes. The blonde girl handed him a docket and pencil. Will you write the address, sir? Blazes Boylan at the counter wrote and pushed the docket to her. Send it at once, will you? he said. It's for an invalid. Yes, sir. I will, sir. Blazes Boylan rattled merry money in his trousers pocket. What's the damage? he asked. The blonde girl's slim fingers reckoned the fruits. Blazes Boylan looked into the cut of her blouse. A young pullet. He took a red carnation from the tall stem glass. This for me? he asked gallantly. The blonde girl glanced sideways at him, got up regardless, with his tie a bit crooked, blushing. Yes, sir, she said. Bending archly, she reckoned again fat pears and blushing peaches. Blazes Boylan looked in her blouse with more favor, the stalk of the red flower between his smiling teeth. May I say a word to your telephone, Missy? he asked roguishly. End of section 17. Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, September 9th, 2010.